Warning, the Not Real Art Podcast is intended for creative audiences only. The Not Real Art Podcast celebrates creativity and creative culture worldwide. It contains material that is fresh, fun and inspiring and is not suitable for boring old art snobs. Now, let's get started and enjoy the show. Greetings and salutations, my creative brothers and sisters. Welcome to Not Real Art, the podcast where we talk to the world's most creative people. I am your host, Sourdough, your faithful, trusty, tireless, relentless host coming at you from Crew West Studio in Los Angeles. Man, do we have a great show for you today. Real VIP in the house, the one and only Joanne Morgan. Joanne is one of our grant winners from 2022. She is a fantastic human, and I cannot wait for you guys to hear her story. So please stay tuned. She is one of our six grant winners from 2022. So we want to celebrate and elevate her and her accomplishments today. So stay tuned for that. Before we get into it, of course, I want to encourage you to go to notrealart.com, our website, and check out all the good, healthy, organic, free-range stuff we got for you over there. It's nutritious, people. It's nutritious. All kinds of fantastic artists that we feature and talk about celebrating their art. We're even doing monthly online exhibitions now, so please be sure to check out our new exhibitions, First Fridays. And what else? I mean, there's all kinds of good stuff happening. So go check it out. Today, today it's all about Joanne Morgan. Joanne, as I said, is one of our grant winners from 2022. Today it's all about her. We want to honor her and her accomplishments. And, you know, I just have the luckiest job in the world to be able to hang out with, you know, incredible artists and talk to them and learn about their practice and their journey and the stories they're trying to tell. You know, Joanne Morgan is a visual artist, uh, professor emeritus of African-American studies and art history at Western Illinois University and author of the Black Arts Movement and the Black Panther Party in American Visual Culture. Her book, Uncle Tom's Cabin as Visual Culture, won the Seaborg Award for Civil War Scholarship in 2008. Since 2020, Morgan has been a full-time fiber artist creating stitched fabric wall hangings on themes related to social justice and gun violence. And so very timely, important stuff, uh, her work, and we're going to get into that. And I can't wait for you to hear her story. So please be sure and stay tuned because it's coming right up. In fact, it's coming right up right now. So without further ado, let's get into this conversation I had with Joanne Morgan. We're so grateful to have her as part of the Not Real Art family. Again, Joanne, congratulations on winning our grant. And without further ado, let's get into this in here from Joanne Morgan. Joanne Morgan, welcome to Not Real Art. Thank you. Great to be here. Oh my gosh, I tell you, the honor is all mine. You know, you're here classing up the joint because uh, <laughs> you are one of our esteemed 2022 Not Real Art Grant winner. And we are just so thrilled for you and to have you part of our community. Yeah, it's just so great to be here with you today. It's been a minute since we've chatted. I think it was last September, October, was it? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I when have, I when I, was I get in to, Grand Rapids that day. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And you know that I remember that day vividly because that's actually one of my favorite days. You know of you know every year when I get to call our grant winners and tell them the good news. It's a real highlight for me to be able to do that. It's one of my favorite days, and so to be able to hear your delight, your surprise, your gratitude that day was, right. was a you definitely made my day. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm guessing you apply to many grants through the years. You know, it's funny. I've talked with you know grant winners in the past, and and they said, "Oh my gosh, I've forgotten I even." Submitted to that, you know, and now I've won it. What has your journey been around grants? Have you do you typically apply to many grants uh, in a given year? Grants, as in visual art. Yes, right? yes. Because uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. I have another earlier life where it was academic, <laughs> but mm-hmm. I returned to art making really right at the time of the pandemic. So I was out of touch. I as far as where to get grants, where to even show. I hadn't been a, an exhibiting artist since probably, oh, back in the 90s when I became a full-time art historian. I still was involved in a few things, but not with the focus that I had decided to put on promoting my art now. So I was just kind of feeling my way and looking at various sites that had calls for art. I don't recall there were a lot of grants, but I think it and I don't remember exactly when I applied, but I think the title Not Real Art probably was what drew me as much as the grant because I, I was, identified with that idea. <laughs> what What was it about the name Not Real Art that you identified with? I have a long history with art that goes back to being a visual art student at an art college. I have a BFA from the California College of Art from way back. And so I have over the years been inculcated in Western traditions, European art. And then when I became an art historian and began teaching, that was what everyone wanted, the survey of art. And so I was rebelling against that. I mean, as I returned to art, I didn't want anything to do with following the Western tradition. And it's a hard habit to break. Because you're measuring yourself against years of being told naturalism and honor the Greeks, because I do figurative work. So I was working hard to not have it be in that tradition. For me, real art in the popular concept meant the Greco-Roman tradition, (laughs) which that's not necessarily the case, but in my kind of thinking. So I really identified with the idea that I was making art that wasn't in somebody else's structure. And what I do is it's, I mean, I'm still pretty much within a structure, but I was using a a medium that at the time I didn't think was traditional for art making. I I learned different. (laughs) A lot of people are using fiber now (laughs) to make pictures. And I was looking for inspiration from a variety of places that were non-Western. And I was also putting into practice, as far as the technique, or the con- not the concept so much as the way of working, things I'd learned in researching the Black arts movement, which is a really wide range of influence. But I learned a lot from researching 
the artists of the African-American artists of the of the late 60s and how they'd gone through that effort to not make traditional neoclassical art, to develop their own vocabulary, way of working, themes, subject matter that was germane to the African-American experience of themselves. Now, I wasn't, that wasn't what I was doing, but I wanted to do that as well, like come up with my own symbols, my own colors, my own ways of working. And to some degree, I do. To some degree, I see other traditions, but that was the goal. So the not real art, yeah, I like that. (laughs) (laughs) I liked it. Yeah, it's been fascinating to kind of observe people's reaction around the name, not real art, because the name was very intentional. And it was sort of the inspiration of it was really just that of a critique, you know, of the conventional, you know, art world, of course, uh, you know, a bit, what's the word, bit of a parody or what have you, but a bit of a critique, because uh, who's to say what is or isn't real art. And there's lots of people that will, uh, that will tell you they know what real art is and isn't. But artists bump up against this all the time. So it, it's a conversation. It's a critique of this uh, sense of legitimacy, right? What is or isn't legitimate? And so art, you know, our name, not real art, artists get the joke immediately. It's really interesting to see how it resonates with artists. But when I've, you know, over the years have talked to certain, you know, gallerists or curators or patrons or collectors, they sort of scratch their head and say, what, I don't get it. What do you mean? Not real art. <laughs> it's just a fascinating sort of sociological kind of, kind of a test, you know. I think the idea of a craft has kind of been put in that category. And, you know, there were crafts and there was fine art. In fact, the school I went to, now called the California College of Art, it was once called the California College of Arts and Crafts. It had that divide. It was founded in the early 20th century and ceramics and textile design and, oh, I forget offhand, but those were crafts and then sculpture, painting, those were fine art. And I'm really happy to see a trend where crafts are are now not accepting that. And in fact, I was invited, someone had seen my work in a show in North Carolina recently, invited to submit to a juried show called Handcrafted. (laughs) And I was kind of surprised because they are pictures, they are figurative. They're not quilts like traditionally. And I entered, I was lucky to get in the show And I was in, you know, good company. There were a lot of people that sculptures made of wood, which normally I would have assumed went into a fine art category. But this was in um, Marie Howard Center in Rocky Point, North Carolina, I give them the mention. Really a lovely space. And they were, you know, we were all embraced into this category of handcrafted. Now that that could be just about anything. I guess painting still doesn't get to go there. But some of them were collages were there in the show. And I'm recently in another show that I wouldn't have thought to enter. I had a show in North Charles at 
the Park Circle Gallery, and they told me about this annual show in North Charleston called Palmetto Hands, and it's for crafts. And I wouldn't have thought to enter, and I did. And so I'm looking forward to it. I was accepted, and I'll go down. And it's part of a big festival in North Charleston, South Carolina. I look forward to see what company I'm in at this show. Oh, it sounds wonderful. Yeah, you know, it's a fascinating topic, isn't it? I mean, what people, you know, various stakeholders, special interests even, you know, they want to, you know, sort of dictate, you know, what is or isn't legitimate. And, you know, the reality is that, you know, we're storytellers, aren't we? I mean, as artists and, you know, it doesn't matter the medium, in my view, you know, if an artist is telling a story in a unique and novel way that resonates, you know, that's kind of the point, you know, and, you know, sure, execution might not be up to snuff and, you know, that gets better over time, you know, practice, 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 you know, but finding your voice as an artist, you know, finding your voice within a medium, you know, that's the whole point. And, you know, and and, and some would argue, I know there's a lot of hand wringing going on right now about, you know, artificial intelligence in terms of art making and this sort of this uh, fusion of art and tech, I think there's an argument to be made that actually this will put, you know, a premium on handmade art objects, human made art objects. What do you think? I don't worry too much about art making being taken over by artificial or other technologies because I think it already has digital photography. There's been graphic design that so much of, and I see it in art shows and I do not gravitate to it, where it's little more than transferring something from a computer onto a screen and maybe manipulating it a little bit. Now that's fine. For some people, that's that's very satisfying. But I think we all find our way into what works for us. I get asked a lot if I do sketches beforehand. My husband has a fancy computer program that he uses in his art to make stencil-like things, and he wanted me to try that. And I'm just, it just kind of, I rebel. It's repellent to me because it is a hands-on thing I want to do. And I don't know where it's going. It's a journey. It's the putting things together. I rarely know the outcome. I have a sense of it. And when I describe what I'm doing, which lately has been portraits <laughs> and portraits of that I want a, a subtle likeness, but they're more individual. They're individual, but universal at the same time. So it's not crucial that they be someone you could recognize in a crowd. But I like to get the essence of the person or whatever it is, and I internalize it. It's hard to, <laughs> hard to describe. Just I look at a lot of pictures. I don't copy them. I just internalize their look. So I have a real sense of what I'm after in my way of working that I've, you know, been doing this three years now. I made up, you know, my own technique. (laughs) It's gradual enough to where it's not that I can redo it if I make a mistake. I'm not going to make a mistake. It's slow enough that my internalizing of what I'm after I get it, like because it, I work slow. I get the likeness of the person. Sometimes the background isn't right, or the 
the clothing isn't perfect. But as far as the essence of the work, which is the face and the gesture, that's going to work out. So I'm not at the present worried about artificial intelligence or digital techniques taking over what I'm doing. And I agree. I like what you said. I think it does put a premium on the hands-on, the tactile, the thing that has that human touch about it. The uh, the organic, right? And for me, it's, you know, all these things are tools, right? And artists have been using tools to make art all kinds of ways, well, for centuries, right? And, you know, for me, AI tech, you know, these are tools. You know, how is AI going to paint a painting? It's not. It's not going to paint a painting. <laughs> you know, it's not going to throw clay, so to speak. It's not going to sew a quilt. And so, you know, it becomes a, a just another tool maybe for brainstorming or, or, or collaboration. You know, I think it's kind of exciting in many ways. Certainly, there will be, you know, some downside, sort of, you know, there are externalities, intended and unintended consequences of, you know, always with these things. But I don't know. I feel like, you know, it will be, you know, for some artists, certainly a a very exciting time. Well, I think that's what you do is you engage with your moment and young people developing their skills to express what they want to express about their moment may need the technology of the moment, whereas those in the Renaissance used oil paint. (laughs) (laughs) So it's ever evolving, I guess. That's right. Well, so you were going back. I mean, it sounds like you were, you're an artist making art. And then somewhere along the way, you decided to double down in art history. And I went back to school. Yeah. I decided, uh, I might like to teach that I felt I was at a point where I had something to share. So I went back to school to get an MFA and in taking art history, it like opened up a part of me that I wouldn't have thought was there that the intellectual while painting, it has intellectual aspects. I really liked the idea of scholarship of looking into something and, and knowing more about it. So I, fortunately, was able to get into a program at UCLA. By then, I started having success. I was in LA and I was doing woven wire sculptures and getting quite a few shows. It's funny when you stop trying, (laughs) suddenly opportunities. So I was still active at both. And then I got jobs. And in teaching in art history, to keep your job, if you're tenure track, you have to publish. Like having an art show wasn't good enough. <laughs> so I started scholarship in the direction of a book and then another book. And I loved doing that. It took me a long time. But as well with the art I was doing, I kind of felt I reached what I wanted to say. It was like a completed project. I got what I wanted to say. And then I had this whole other field of researching representation of African-Americans in American visual culture, in essence. And then there were two books on related to that. And that was very satisfying. I stopped teaching, though. Oh, and the teaching. It wasn't just about art history. I got a job in Western Illinois at Western Illinois University and persuaded them to put me in the African-American Studies Department. 
they were hiring both me and my husband, who is a, was going to chair the art department. So this was a really nice thing for everybody because <laughs> they didn't have to worry about me and my husband in the same department. And they liked what I brought to African-American studies because I had a lot of knowledge of African-American culture and history. And I really loved that. I liked teaching African-American studies and that was really very satisfying. But when it ended, there I am with time on my hands, which coincides with the pandemic. I had no thought to go back to making art. It just hadn't occurred to me. A matter of fact, I got a job as a paraprofessional in a middle school for a semester. And it really wasn't, my husband didn't think it it was a good thing for me. And I pretty much agreed. And and I said, well, if if you'll make me a studio, I could make some art. So this room I'm in, if you saw the rest of it, it's very light, windows all around. We had a pool table, which has been converted to a sewing table. And it's really just heaven. (laughs) So I got the studio and I just bought a sewing machine and little by little kind of figured out what I wanted to do. And my first, you know, I made potholders, learned the technique, and a few things that I wouldn't necessarily show anyone. And then this coincided with the Black Lives Movement going full steam. I was already aware of it. And when I taught, like I'd have an opportunity to have a panel and we'd discuss things. I was there when Michael Brown was killed. We had an on-campus demonstration. So I, had a, I was in a community where I could, ex, could share and express my feelings about things that were going on in our national life. With the pandemic, I've just learned to sew, not sure what I'm going to do, and George Floyd is murdered. <laughs> so that comes together. And I realized I could say something with this medium. I had developed enough to where I could do a figure. And so that propelled me into the content of the kind of art I did. My first one was a memorial, which is something I'd studied before. Going back to Michael Brown, Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson, Missouri, back in maybe 2015. I started paying attention to the memorials that, like the the memorial that was erected in Ferguson, teddy bears and flowers and all of those things that people bring. When I taught, I'd been collecting some of these, you know, people who had been killed by the police and the memorials and the artwork that people did. And which, I mean, one might say that is not real art, but in my way of thinking, it it is is very much real art. It's like a spontaneous expression by the community and sometimes individuals. And I was really taken with it. So when it came to sewing, my first one that I felt was worthy of entering in a show or showing someone was Memorial for Breonna Taylor. And I gave her the hands up, don't shoot gesture. And I put candles and a teddy bear. And I made the whole quilt like one of those memorials that I'd seen on the street. So you have some examples of my work. Anyway, there were a lot of them. And it was interesting how when the pandemic came, we're not out so much anymore. And I don't know, my husband and I started having the TV on more, I think. 
And I was really aware of what was going on in the outer world through just hearing about it. And I was never at a loss for a memorial. It was kind of sad to say, and I'm still not. You know, there's always something going on that is worthy of remembering or paying a tribute. Yeah, no, it's wonderful. I mean, you know, it's... um... I love the fact that you've taken on the cause of the African-American cause and and helping to shine a light and enlighten and empower and advocate and use your art as a vehicle for civil protest for change. When I was teaching, you know, teaching is sharing. And, you know, you have students, they're learning things they've never learned before as a result of how you've presented a class. So it's really satisfying. But with that no longer available, there's still that impulse in me to to share and to you know, have a voice within my time. So I believe I shared with you Elegy for Elijah, which is a tribute to Elijah McClain. What many of them are in the early ones, like that it, it's a female figure, but I created a sort of, a, it's not an alter ego. It's like just a, I always struggle with how to say what this figure is, but like a kind of like a deity, but a figure that offers comfort. Hopi have katsinas. They sort of serve that function. Sometimes santos do. I didn't want it to be European, but if I had. <laughs> so I, I first created this kind of comforting figure, and this was during the pandemic where I felt we needed comfort. So this figure shows up in a lot of the work. And in some of it, it is the memorials. But even I did one of with the figure comforting children, remember events at the the border ongoing, but they were really in the news for a while, the kids in cages, the separation of families, it was just horrific, and seemingly endless news about that. So I you know, sent my comforter to the border and had her with children. So the evolution is that often there's that figure in these memorials. And some are portraits. I did a portrait of George Floyd's daughter. <laughs> She's making this gesture. I found a photograph of this little 10-year-old with pigtails with the, making the Black Power salute. It was Gianna Floyd. and. It wasn't exactly like, you know, that. It was just sort of that, like someone had said, make a fist. (laughs) And it was, it just, to me, it was really moving that here's this little 10-year-old and what she was going through and how she took comfort in the thought. And I, as I recall, I think she had a meeting with President Biden, and he said, well, you know, your daddy changed the world. It's going to change the world, or your daddy changed the world. And that just, you know, really moved me. So I, that's one of my favorites that, that I have no intention of parting with, mm. but the little girl like that. So tell me about the quilt behind you. You have a, a wonderful work of art there just behind you. This is the last one I did. That's why it's up on the wall. I'm getting used to it. After I mostly do them flat, and sometimes I put them up on the wall, and I realize, oh, that R is too small. I'll have to yank it off and replace it. (laughs) But this one I've done, there was some corrections after I hung it up. 
She needed boots, needed some cowboy boots. <laughs> what it is, and I usually don't like to talk about work until it's done. I, I feel like if you can articulate what you're doing, you don't need to do it. <laughs> so this is part of a series. This is the ninth one. It's called Uvalde, Texas. And I'm going to do a portrait of each of the 19 children. So that means they have 10 more quilts. I'm far enough along where I feel fairly secure in talking about it that I'll still, I mean, I hope I get to the end of it. And it still really does move me because each one is a different person. This girl is named Ellie. This girl is named Jayla. They both had been cheerleaders at different times in their schools. So I saw pictures of them. She liked basketball. And so I tried to find something personal about each of the portraits and just pay tribute. Uh, most of them are single, but if there's a way I can have two in a picture, I like that, I think. So that's Uvaldi, Ellie and Jayla, Jayla Seguero, Ellie Garcia. And I look forward to a time when I'll have a, a gallery space that I can show them all in one place. And I just feel that will be really moving. It was certainly for me, but I think for people to see, I mean, 19 children as on quilts, each individual and each hopefully interesting enough that you're drawn to look at each one. Each one will come with a, I usually put captions about what they're about because no one would know that really unless it's something personal about each one. So on number 10, it's out on the table. It doesn't have a face yet. Just the background is, is there, and I'm trying to figure out what to do with it. But that's the current and future project. You were explaining your kind of vision for having, I think, 19 quilts for each of the girls. Yeah, well, there were boys, too. There were 19 children who were killed in Uvalde. And this one has two children on it. I've done another one of a boy and a girl that were very close. So the others are individuals. We'll see then how many. So that cuts it down to 17 quilts. And I may try to get another combination, but they, you know, they have to have something in common. But a room full of all these children, just portraits of them. I just, I envision it being a very powerful thing to look at. Uh, well, absolutely. I mean, to, how poignant. I mean, just the juxtaposition of the tragedy with the warmth of quilting. You know, I mean, the, the idea that a quilt, you know, what that quilt means, especially when it's hand-stitched and handmade, maybe if it's passed down from generation to generation, and, you know, and here you are honoring these fallen angels, you know, in the medium of fiber and quilting. It's a poignant, poignant juxtaposition. I know shortly after in the town, they gathered a lot of artists to do murals. So individual, I think there were teams of two artists to do a mural and they filled the town with pictures I thought that was really lovely. I don't know why I thought to do this because most of my work, as it has evolved, it is mostly memorials. So 
I don't know, I, the fact that they were children and I, something was in the back of my mind, but I didn't know I was going to do all of the children. <laughs> and I started collecting just little snippets of information. The Washington Post did a whole article on you know, so-and-so was in, was 10 years old. Her favorite color was this, just little personal things. Something in me kept that and collected photographs. And then I just kind of seemed like a no-brainer. Wouldn't this be a good subject? Just the fact that it's so many is daunting, but the fact that it's so many is the point as well. Yes, so we'll that's see. right. So what is your process when you embark upon a vision for a collection of quilts, if you will. Take us through your kind of your process and your workflow. Are you sketching sort of the vision for what you want to make and then thinking about color palette and then you start to cut and sew? Take us through how you think through the creative process uh, for one of your pieces. Well, up to this, they've been individuals. It's an individual piece. So, it's usually something in the news, something contemporary that is on my mind, that bothers me, that makes me angry even. And then I just kind of wait for the inspiration. I could use an example, but this one isn't a good example because it's a group one. I did send you the one Elegy for Elijah. So why don't I tell you that, how that came to be? So I had in mind, well, that one really upset me because I had a sense of this young man from the news coverage. Matter of fact, I was listening to coverage and about him and the news person that was talking. It's like his voice broke, you know, that little catch in your voice when you really moved. I get it when I talk about my work sometimes like, and I get it when I think about him. And so that caught my attention. I had already developed this. I called her Lady Corona. And that's a figure with the mask. She wore gloves. This is during the coronavirus. Often had a heart, jewelry or somewhere, a crown as in Corona, Spanish for crown. And so I wanted to do a tribute to Elijah McLean somehow. I wanted to somehow remark on him. So I've had the figure in mind and I read about him. I read more about him and I learned he'd played the violin. And this did it for me. He had taught himself to play a violin. He's a 23-year-old young man who police kind of accosted him on the way home from a convenience store. And he died in their custody of ketamine overdose. And I think he was, as he said to them, I'm not doing anything. I'm just different. I think he was kind of a sensitive soul. So he taught himself to play the violin and he would... He worked in a massage business, and it was in a mall that had a pet store. And he'd take breaks, and he'd go over to the pet store and play his violin for the cats because he thought they were lonely. So that's I hear this, and it just is falling into place. So I create the Lady Corona figure, and I have her playing the violin, which was really hard. <laughs> I redid that violin so many times and getting the hand in. To your your question, no, I don't sketch ahead of time. 
I'll sketch something like the silhouette of a policeman if I'm going to have like a line of policemen. But as far as the face, I start always the same. It's the brown cutout and it's a brown cutout with, I leave a hole where the eyes would be almost like I'm creating a little skull, the shape of the face. And the eyes are the, they look like tears. They're supposed it's, they're fluid. Some of them are tears. Some of them, it's just now my style. The tear goes in, eyelid on top of that, nose and mouth on top, and it layers into place as far as the face. But hands and arms, they're hard. But once I have the face, I have, so for this one, Lady Corona has the face. I'm working on the hair. I've got the gesture for the violin, and I'm reworking it and reworking it and a dress. And then there's got to be a background or there's got to be a setting. Well. This happens in Aurora, Colorado. So think Colorado, what do you think of? I think of aspen trees and they're beautiful. And I found a fabric that it had a pattern that kind of reminded me of aspen trees. So that goes in. And I had found a yellow that kind of looked like aspen leaves. Then I, I looked up Colorado. They had a, the state flowers columbine. So that's the blue flowers and they get in there. And Colorado hair streak butterflies, so they get in there. And then the little kittens are at the bottom. And so some of the things are s- symbolic of the place. A lot of it is that. Others, like there's one I have on the table now. It's going to be one of the Uvalde children, a girl. And I don't have a lot of settings for Uvalde. I mean, I can kind of give them a generalized Texas, South Texas look. This one was. It's kind of like to be a basketball stadium with the crowd. and <laughs> But for the one I'm working on, I have a sense of the girl from looking at some of her pictures and her her spirit, her personality. She seems like there's a lot of pink things and she sort of has delicate surroundings. Also, so she looks kind of, you know, solid. And so I'm working with colors that I think are going to express her. And it, there has to be something in the background interesting, because if it's just a figure there, it's got to be something that stitch-wise is interesting. I like to use lace. This one's got some flowers that are lace. But overall, it's going to be a memorial. So I can always rely on flowers. A lot of them get teddy bears, especially this Uvalde group. A lot of teddy bears get put in them. Candles can always be used. unless I have a particular setting in mind. And mostly I don't. Mostly the setting is kind of hard. Now, how to get these colors? I had already a pinkish background. It's really light with floral that I like a lot, the one I'm working on. So what goes with it? So I I have like piles of fabric. Anyone who stitches, (laughs) quilt makers will tell you that's true. And they're, you know, cupboards as colors. So I think I need something green. So all the greens come out. I lay it on top of the background. Some are just too jarring. Some are subtle. And the fabric that any of it might look nice with this fabric, I have set aside as a pile next to it. I'm not always sure what it's going to be. So this girl's going to have a cat. She had a cat. And so I have the cat's picture. They aren't real good pictures. If you ever snapped a picture of a child holding their pet, 
<laughs> my mother had to do that many times. So I really identify. Delighted to be doing a child holding a cat. So I'm going to probably have to look around for pictures of cats and get a composite in my head of how to do the cat. But then it can't be like, because I don't want it to be naturalistic. It, it's got to be somewhat stylized in the style that I've developed. So I don't pre-sketch. I'll lay uh, muslin down the fabric and draw on that to get the shape of the head and the arms, and if it has legs or any of the body parts. Free form. It's, I mean, yeah, I know you, the last thing you track is your hours, but I'm telling you what, I mean, looking at the piece behind you there, I mean, it just looks like you've got hundreds of hours in that. That's, that's just incredible. It's moving a little quicker. I bought a new sewing machine. That helps. <laughs> and it's nice. It's a Janome, I think is how they call it. The Continental M7. <laughs> Which, I don't know, if someone quilts and hears this, they'll, maybe they'll be envious. Oh, it was described to me as the Mercedes Benz. Yeah, good, good, good. Well, you know, I just, you know, one of the things you wrote in your application that struck me, if I can recall it, it, it you know, when there was a question in the application for the grant that basically asked all of the applicants, you know, what does the phrase not real art mean to you? And you sort of referenced the time you, you go back to college to study art history and earn your PhD. And you remarked about how you were sort of taken back by, you know, what you were observing because of course you were a little bit of a fish out of water because you had been a studio artist. Um, now suddenly, suddenly you're in the classroom studying art history and you were sort of taken back by the fact that it seemed that most of the students studying art history didn't necessarily like art or artists. Yes. What was that about? What do you mean when you say students studying art history didn't appreciate art or artists? It was really a, a mind-blowing experience because well, they'd all come up through, they'd have masters already. I had a master in studio and I'd been several years out of school. So when I was in school, it was a visual art. <laughs> so I'm sitting around a table with these people that are younger than me that have all read Jacques Derrida and I don't know, I can't, the names Foucault. And they're just, I had an artist friend that I would commiserate with afterwards. And I'd say, I feel like I'm in an Ionesco play because one would say Foucault. And then over here, you'd get, I don't know, Derrida. And then, Whoosh, Frankfurt School. I just didn't know what was going on because the idea of critical theory had really taken hold in my department based on who some of the faculty were. Now, my advisor, the leader of that seminar, wasn't necessarily corrupted completely by the new theories. So I'm sitting there not understanding all of that. And then it was a seminar on the 50s. And I always kind of related to Jackson Paula because when I was in school, I went through the Jackson, I went through an abstract expressionist moment, big, built a big six foot by six foot canvas in my bedroom and slashed paint around and loved it. It was just freeing and loved it. And so we're sitting there, we're talking about Jackson Pollock and Helen Frankenthaler. And someone says, well, what he said about this was this. You know, what the artist said about his work was 
and, and finished the sentence. And, and then someone else said, well, I don't think it's really that important what the artist meant. Like the work just got put together in time by the zeitgeists that had convened in his head. So I was very apprehensive. Like, oh, I didn't tell them I was an artist at first. And I was getting in shows in Los Angeles. And, you know, I wasn't making money, but I was showing it in a lot of alternative places. And, and I had friends that were artists and I was, you know, active. Boy, I kept that to myself at first. And then I, you know, kind of settled down to realize a lot of that was, they're kind of full of themselves because they've just learned this new trick. So there's yeah. something. The arrogance, right? It's like, oh, I have a shiny new thing. So therefore, yeah, uh, um, I'm going <laughs> to make I didn't sure dare the world. say, oh, no, I know what he, I, I get it. I empathize with Jackson Pollock. No. <laughs> 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 oh, no. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. I, I don't know. Well, Joanne Morgan, I, I tell you what, you are just a delight. And I am so grateful to have you as part of our Not Real Art family and community. You are part of this really special class of grant winners because as it happened in 2022, all of our winners were women. And it just was such a beautiful thing. I was so happy to see that. I mean, clearly, you're just looking for the best artists and the best art, you know, within the context of the application and the grant. And you look up and you realize who the winners are. And, you know, our alumni are all diverse. I mean, it's not, I mean, diversity and inclusion, we don't even have to worry about diversity and inclusion because that's just who we are. We are, we, we just inherently diverse and inclusive. And we've been actually commended for that over the years. But then to have a class last year of all women just was this extra beautiful moment, a milestone moment for us and hopefully for you and the other winners. And I, I'll tell you what, I'm just so, so delighted and so grateful that you took time out of your busy schedule to come on and talk with me today and help us better understand your life, your work, your practice and I want you to come back. You're part of the family. You're not going to get rid of us. We're like a bad habit. It's hard to kick, you know. <laughs> well, do you ever have any get-togethers or any activities in California? I have a daughter who lives in Oakland that I love an excuse to come to California. So anything you do like that. We will let you know and I'll, and I'll flip it on you. Yeah, <laughs> and we do events. I mean, the pandemic kind of threw everything know topsy-turvy a bit but we're you know things are starting to settle down now in 2023 and and we started doing a few kind of educational events last year uh, we haven't done a gallery show since pre-pandemic but you will absolutely know about i want to get all the alumni together all the artists because we have you know what 36 winners now over four years and it's just been you know wonderful to bring everybody together and part of what we're trying to do is create community and so, you know, having everybody come together under one roof for some event or show or happening would be a wonderful thing to do. But I'm going to flip it on you because if you're coming to Oakland sometime to see your daughter, regardless, please let us know because I would love to uh, coordinate a rendezvous and uh, okay. we could uh, break, break bread together and uh, maybe drink too much wine. 
I like wine. I'm from California originally. <laughs> I have a question before you go. Sure. That thing in the background looks like Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> Your artwork in the Oh, this, yes. So that piece is from an artist called, uh, here in LA, he goes by the uh, pseudonym, The Phantom Artist. And that's spray paint on butcher paper. And he does these sort of outline silhouettes with the paint dripping. This particular one says Lost Angeles, but it's backwards. It's written backwards and Lost Angeles. And he's holding a gun. And it's a commentary on socioeconomics here in the inner city of L.A. And it's a powerful piece. Phantom, one of his sort of claims to fame is that he there's a rock band out of L.A. called uh, Rage Against the Machine. It's very political group and their first album he did the album cover for uh album cover art and uh, we had a gallery my business partner and i had a gallery here in la called crew west gallery uh, for 10 years and phantom was an artist that would show with us you know off and on over the years and so that was a piece i was able to acquire and uh, i just love it well, I don't know. I go to a lot of gyms and have over my life, and there's always a poster <coughs> of Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> exactly, <So> exactly. <laughs> I just want I am to- not a bodybuilder, so I do not have my my wife wishes I was. But uh, no, from your angle, I could see how you might think that that was sort of a bodybuilding kind of a motif, um, but not so. Anyway, I am so grateful, Joanne, that we were able to connect here and have you on the show. Please Thank come you. back. Please have a beautiful day. We're going to sign off now, but uh, hang tight. And we're just so grateful. Thank you, Joanne. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to the Not Real Art Podcast. Please make sure to like this episode, write a review, and share with your friends on social. Also, remember to subscribe so you get all of our new episodes. Not Real Art is produced by Crew West Studios in Los Angeles. Our theme music was created by Ricky Peugeot and Desi DeLauro from the band Parlor Social. Not Real Art is created by We Edit Podcast and hosted by Captivate. Thanks again for listening to Not Real Art. We'll be back soon with another inspiring episode celebrating creative culture and the artists who make it.